I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 4th, 2012. Coming up, we'll hear about a new book called The Fat Switch by CU scientist Richard Johnson. Dr. Johnson will explain how your cells make energy with little batteries called mitochondria. Too much sugar can kill those batteries. The more sugar you eat, it actually seems to cause damage to the mitochondria. And over time, you may actually lose mitochondria. And at that point, you're almost locked into a lower energy state unless you can stimulate the growth of more mitochondria to allow you to get back to your original energy level. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. More and more people have food allergies these days. It's forcing them to check nutrition labels for common allergens such as nuts, dairy, and wheat. As for why allergic reactions are on the rise, new research indicates that chemicals that make our drinking water cleaner might increase allergies to food. Dichlorophenols are bacteria-killing chemicals used to chlorinate water. They're also in products ranging from mothballs to pesticides. They enter our body when we breathe them, eat foods treated with them, or drink chlorinated tap water. To determine whether a buildup of these chemicals can increase allergies, researchers from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine analyzed urine from 2,000 people. They looked for an immune system allergy marker called IgE, and they looked for dichlorophenols. Sure enough, people with higher levels of that chlorinating chemical also had higher levels of IgE. The researchers speculate that dichlorophenols may increase IgE response by messing up our immune systems, or... The chemicals may kill gut microbes that our bodies normally depend on to build resistance to allergens. Either way, it looks like high intake of this common chemical hurts our health. The study was published in this month's Annals of Energy, sorry, Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. News from Mars can be pretty exciting because, well, it is news from Mars. It is so amazing that we have a remote control car, actually a remote control science laboratory roaming the surface of Mars, there's no need to exaggerate any of the results. But last week, rumors went wild after NASA announced a press conference about the Curiosity rover on Mars. It started when Curiosity chief scientist John Grossinger said, quote, this data is going to be one for the history books, unquote. He meant that the entire two-year mission would produce a wealth of data that would be historically important. However, some people took his quote to mean that NASA would announce life on Mars, or at least organic compounds. The rumor ran amok in the Twitterverse, the blogosphere, and even among mainstream news sources. At one point, the Curiosity rover tweeted, yes, it has its own Twitter account, Quote, everybody, chill. After careful analysis, there are no Martian organics in recent samples. So what was the news? Well, yesterday, NASA announced that for the first time ever, the Curiosity rover had analyzed a sample of Martian soil with its full complement of instruments on the rover. The sample was about half common volcanic minerals and half non-crystalline materials such as glass, and it included some water. The water does not mean the sample was wet. Water molecules bound to the grains of sand or dust are not unusual, but the quantity was higher than anticipated. 
Although this thorough soil analysis may not be the news so breathlessly speculated, it adds another piece to the puzzle of Mars and shows that the Mars Science Laboratory mission will give scientists back on Earth plenty to study in the next couple years. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. Back to Earth. We can't blame it on ticks and other unseemly insects alone. Population growth, urbanization, and the intensification of agriculture are advancing the spread of diseases transmitted between animals and humans. Social and economic changes ranging from economic downturns to displacement of populations by armed conflict often trigger disease outbreaks by altering sanitation systems, behavioral patterns, and uses of natural resources. Indeed, vector-borne so-called zoonotic diseases appear to be on the rise. They include West Nile virus, Lyme disease, and dengue fever. That's according to new research by a group of U.S. and British scientists. These diseases result from agents or pathogens that naturally infect wildlife. They're transmitted to humans by mosquitoes, ticks, and other carriers. Although the diseases are sensitive to climate, climate change does not appear to be a driving force, major driving force, behind emerging diseases. That's according to a co-author of the studies, biologist Marm Kilpatrick of the University of California, Santa Cruz. Once established, introduced pathogens often evolve to take advantage of their new environments, including new hosts and vectors. With much of the landscape shaped by human activities, pathogens may thrive by infecting hosts and vectors that do well in man-made environments. The research was published last week in the journal The Lancet. tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker. Up next, we're in that time of year when animals hibernate. Before they started their long winter's nap, they fattened up so they can make it through the winter. According to CU Health Sciences researcher Richard Johnson, we humans also evolved to put on weight to make it through leaner times. But for us, it's not called a change of seasons that gets the weight gain started. It's a specific trigger called sugar. Specifically, a sugar called fructose, which is in honey, fruit juice, corn syrup, and even table sugar. In his new book, The Fat Switch, Johnson traces how fructose sugar has made people fat and sick for thousands of years. For instance, while Egyptian kings appear trim and buff in their statues, well, their mummies often have lots of skin folds, meaning that as living humans, many were fat. In and the, the fattest ones often ate lots of sugar. In The Fat Switch, John Johnson also talks about kings who loved sugar so much, sometimes they made sugar statues and ate them, leading many to be very fat and prone to modern diseases such as diabetes and heart attack and stroke. Johnson explains all this and more in his new book. As a holiday present to listeners who call in and pledge their support for a minimum of $40 this morning, you can get a copy of The Fat Switch. Call us here at 303-449-4885 for a copy of The Fat Switch. Now, let's listen in as How on Earth's Shelley Schlender talks with Richard Johnson about how sugar affects children. They begin with how too much sugar can make a person's body get stuck storing the sugar as fat. Here's Dr. Johnson. If you can't burn fat, you'll accumulate it and you'll produce less energy. If there's certain foods that are blocking our ability to burn fat 
and at the same time stimulating appetite, they're worse than just based on calories. And it turns out that there are certain foods that seem to do this. And the, the primary culprit or criminal is fructose. And uh, people who eat fructose and animals that eat fructose become at risk for becoming leptin resistant over time. And they also, it blocks ener energy production and it blocks fat metabolism. Fructose, that's something in fruit. That's right. So fructose is a sugar. It's commonly present in table sugar. It, well, just a second, Rick Johnson, table sugar, people don't think of as fruit. Okay, so let's talk about this. Fructose is a sugar and it's present in certain foods. One of the foods that it's present in is fruit. It's also present in honey. We normally think of fruit and honey as being healthy. But fructose is also present in sugar. And sugar, or table sugar, is sucrose. But it consists of a molecule that contains fructose and glucose bound together. And when you eat sugar, it's broken down into fructose and glucose in your intestine. Fructose is also present in a sweetener known as high fructose corn syrup. Uh, this is a sweetener derived from corn, and it consists of free fructose and free glucose mixed together. So it turns out that the most common sources of fructose in our diet is not from fruit. It's from these added sugars, table sugar and high fructose corn syrup. Are we taking in more sugar today than we did 200 years ago? Absolutely. We have been increasing our sugar intake dramatically for the last three, 400 years, and it's particularly gone up in the last 50 years following the introduction of high fructose corn syrup. Well, for people who are caring about the health of their children and their families, when they switch from soda to fruit juices, is that a good idea? Natural fruits, although they contain fructose, they also contain a lot of good ingredients. They contain vitamin C, antioxidants, and many things that actually combat the effects of fructose. And in fact, uh, natural fruits are healthy. And when you say a natural fruit, you mean an apple that you bite into and chew, or a pear, or a watermelon, not the natural juice, the whole fruit. Yeah, the whole fruit. And there are some fruits that are worse than others in terms of fructose content. But having said that, natural fruits tend to have not so much fructose, and they have a lot of good ingredients. However, when you drink fruit juice, it's combining a number of fruit in one glass, and so you get a larger amount of sugar, you get a lot of, larger amount of fructose. When you drink it really fast, you get high concentrations very rapidly in your blood, and so it turns out that fruit juices are probably not healthy, the amount of fructose overwhelms the good things in the juice. There's now very good data showing that children who drink too much fruit juice are at high risk for becoming obese. Let's talk some more about children because they're our biggest concern. We, we adults, we can make choices because we're grown-ups, but kids, other people make choices for them. That's the time of life that they're making their habits form. And already we have a number of children who are obese, or have high blood pressure, or have other signs that their health is in trouble. Does that group of children need a different health policy than other children do because of how their bodies are working? Yes. Uh, I mean, I think we need to have a health policy for everybody. 
but I agree that childhood obesity is becoming an increasingly major problem. One in six children now are obese. Many of them are developing high blood pressure. Many of them are developing insulin resistance, and we are now seeing type 2 diabetes occurring in childhood. Not only that, but it affects their performance. There's now studies that show that it affects their ability to perform tasks. Cognitive function can be affected. They can be more hyperactive. They can have trouble learning. They can be easily falling asleep when they're trying to learn because they're so tired. And we have actually published a paper linking chronic sugar intake with attention deficit hyperactivity syndrome. Now, Rick Johnson, when you say chronic, that means a long time, meaning regular use, which is kind of how all children use sugar. Yes. Back in the 1980s, there were some studies done to look at how sugar might have a role in attention deficit hyperactivity syndrome, or ADHD. And those studies involved giving a single dose of sugar or a very short period of sugar intake to look for how it might affect attention deficit disorder. The studies were negative, and so the conclusion was that sugar didn't have a role in ADHD. But they were looking at acute effects of sugar. And when we look at the studies and the literature in terms of trying to look at a relationship between chronic sugar intake and ADHD, suddenly it becomes a very, very strong, compelling argument that eating sugar for months to years may dramatically increase the risk for ADHD. That's just one example of a health issue that might be affected by the amount of sugar. Correct. This is a dilemma because right now USDA food policy has stated that as many as one-third of calories can come from sugar in food. And there's been a thought that if it's a calorie and it's not too many calories, that's not a problem. What we're learning is that fructose is biologically active. It isn't just a calorie. We even have some experimental data suggesting that it may increase the risk for food allergies. Fructose intake and sugar intake in children may have a role in the reason we're seeing such an increased risk of anaphylaxis and severe allergies to peanuts and other proteins. And perhaps celiac disease and other autoimmune conditions. That's correct. So if we have all of this happening, and there are some children who can drink as much chocolate milk as they want, and some children that can eat cookies and they don't have a problem, and then you have some children that are overweight and tired, and they're told, well, make sure that you eat the chips that are baked, not fried, and avoid eating any cheese, and drink the chocolate milk and not the whole milk because it has fewer calories, and exercise more. What's going to happen to those children that already have metabolic syndrome? You're bringing up a very interesting point, which is that not everyone seems to be so sensitive to the effects of sugar. And there are young people out there who are eating huge amounts of sugar, and they still stay skinny. And the question is why? Studies that we've done here at the university, as well as elsewhere, have shown that, especially in children, Many children don't absorb fructose very effectively. Perhaps two out of three young children won't absorb all their fructose. And we did a study, which is not published yet, but it was done at Children's Hospital here. And we looked at children who have fatty liver, and we found that those children who had fatty liver and were overweight, when they received a dose of fructose, they absorbed almost all of it. 
whereas the lean children did not. Most of them malabsorbed some of the fructose. Well, on the playground, some of the children who are leaner would say, I'm just quicker, and I'm higher energy, and you guys that are slow, you're fat and lazy. Yeah, that's not the way it works. So the, the sugar, once you start absorbing the sugar, it will, over time, reduce your mitochondria. Mitochondria, what are those? Our body is made up of cells, and we have millions and millions of cells that constitute our body. And the, each cell has a nucleus, which is kind of the brain of the cell, but each cell also contains little units called mitochondria. And these mitochondria are what produce energy. Are they like our batteries, our ever-ready battery inside the cell? Yes, they are like our batteries. They're basically the energy factories of the cell, and they produce the energy that runs our cells. When you produce a lot of energy, that is important in being able to run and to bicycle and to climb mountains and to swim and to stay up. The energy we produce is very important, and that energy is called ATP. When a person eats more food, generally they will produce more energy. But with fructose, when you eat more, it actually slows the production of the energy. So it, it has an opposite effect. So you produce less energy, so you accumulate more fat, and you tend to be more tired. Now what happens over time, the more sugar you eat, it actually seems to cause damage to the mitochondria. And over time, you may actually lose mitochondria. And at that point, you're almost locked into a lower energy state unless you can stimulate the growth of more mitochondria to allow you to get back to your original energy level. You mean that once a child or a, a grown-up's body is in trouble metabolically, eating more sugar, which will make them feel more energetic for a little while, might be killing more of their batteries inside of their cells? Yes. Basically, over time, you start to lose these mitochondria. Now, in children who become obese, we, most of them still have quite a few mitochondria. They can recover quicker. You can get them back to normal weight easier than you can like a 55-year-old or 60-year-old who may have lost a fair number of mitochondria. It's going to be harder to get that person back to a low, stable weight unless you find ways to stimulate their mitochondria to increase their numbers. And the very best way is exercise. Oh, so even though it really will be harder for a child who's overweight to exercise because their body is not as good at handling energy yet, it might be even more important for that child to exercise. That's right. Exercise is one of the best ways to stimulate mitochondrial growth, and that will allow one to help reset to their weight easier. Let's talk a little bit more about what fructose can do to a person's body if their body doesn't handle it very well. You have mentioned in your research that if a body is not handling fructose well, it can start to mean that the body does not handle any kind of starch or sugar well. The body starts to turn any kind of carbohydrate that it takes in into fructose, which starts messing up the body again. Yes, and classically we think that most of the fructose that we get is coming from the sugars we eat because they contain fructose. But it is true that our group has recently discovered that fructose can be made from carbohydrates we eat even when those carbohydrates don't contain fructose. So unfortunately, under certain circumstances, we can convert carbs that we're eating into fructose. Now, our paper on this hasn't yet been published, but we do have strong data that this does occur 
at least in animals. And so it will be interesting to determine if this is one of the mechanisms driving obesity today, and one of the reasons why carbohydrates have been so strongly associated with obesity and diabetes. I'm thinking about the child who goes to lunch and is told, especially because you're overweight, you should be eating your bread and you should be eating your potato and you should be eating your chocolate milk and you should not be adding any kind of oils to what you're eating and you should certainly avoid that cheese because you need to limit your calories. For a child whose body is turning their carbs into fructose and then storing it instead of using it as energy. For an adult who's doing this, is that a recipe for success or is that a recipe for disaster? Probably not a good recipe for success. If you have a child who's overweight, the first thing to do is to try to limit the amount of sugar the child is eating. Without a doubt, that's the number one first thing you should do. You should try to look at all the packages, Try to see if they're eating sources of sugar you may not know about. High fructose corn syrup can be quite concentrated in foods that we think of as healthy, like fruit yogurts can sometimes be filled with sugar, fruit juices. So the first thing is to try to reduce the sugar. And that may be all it takes. And we've had some overweight or obese children become suddenly lean in in a period of a few months just with that maneuver alone and more energetic, and more happy, and less tired. Absolutely. It can be an amazing transformation, and children can turn around very quickly. If that's not working, it's possible that those children may already have found a way to be converting their carbs into fructose, even when they're not eating fructose. And it's not that these children have done something diabolical or bad. It's that their cells are struggling with the modern way that we eat and have made a compensation that isn't really working for their body. That's right. We're still trying to figure out how that happens, but it looks quite likely that some people are converting carbs to fructose in their body. And then they're storing it instead of burning it. Right. So if just reducing sugar is not enough to see a very significant change in weight, it may be reasonable to restrict carbohydrates in general. And so I think that that is something we should be thinking more and more about. I know everyone is worried in children to restrict carbs too much, but the data is the data, and it looks like some carbohydrate restriction may be of significant benefit to these uh, children who are overweight, who do not respond to just restricting sugar. Then could you give them a little bit more fat? Yes. So foods like cheese and milk... Dairy products are actually, I feel, are very healthy. They actually help neutralize some of these effects of fructose. And so I do believe that dairy products are good. Unsalted nuts are good. There are a variety of things that I would recommend. And if they have to eat a sweet, give them a 70% dark chocolate, which actually contains substances that stimulate mitochondrial growth. And they still taste good. And it doesn't have that much sugar. Thanks to Shelley for that report. Richard Johnson is with CU Health Sciences in Denver. His new book is The Fat Switch. If you'd like a copy right now, call us here this morning and pledge your support of at least $40 to KGNU. Call 303-449-4885. 
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our this week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender and engineered by Jim Bullen. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.